The e-commerce field podcast is sponsored by Shopify, the platform I'm currently in the process of migrating to. Why the move away from Magento, which I've used for years? Well, Shopify has an enormous ecosystem of developers and apps, and their template framework is really well architected. Plus, of course, they're a hosted service so I can focus on my business instead of spending hours playing system admin and troubleshooting server problems. So if you're looking for a highly customizable solution you don't need a programmer to manage, check them out at shopify.com. Welcome to the E-Commerce Fuel Podcast, your headquarters for building a six-figure-plus e-commerce business. I'm your host, e-commerce entrepreneur and Jeff Bezos wannabe, Andrew Derry. Hey guys, it's Andrew here and welcome to the E-Commerce Fuel Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today and joining me on the show. In today's episode, I'm going to be chatting with Paul Leppa from PearlsOnly.com. And Paul first came on my radar in a big way, actually, when he joined the uh, the private forum. And within the course of about six weeks, rose to the rank of a five-star member, which which usually takes, oh man, usually takes you know months and months, if not years, for people to get there. Because he just contributed so much incredibly valuable information uh, in such a short period of time. And he's got a fascinating story. He runs a seven-figure multinational pearl business from Beijing, China. And we're going to be diving into the story of his business, how he grew it up, and his background a little bit. But but even more so, we're going to be focusing on uh, how he runs his business in China, what the business climate is like in China, some of the interesting, unique challenges he faces, and some of the opportunities he sees both uh, you know in terms of sourcing products and also just in e-commerce in general going forward. So it's a little bit longer. We're going to dive right into it. Uh, my apologies ahead of time. The audio quality is a little rough. The connection between us from Beijing to Bozeman uh, was, was less than crystal clear. But if you can get over that, a great discussion and hope you get a lot out of it. So Paul, I want to, I really want to dive into to the story behind pearlsonly.com. I'm really excited to hear about China, your experience living there, running a business in China. But before we dive into the nuts and bolts, can you give us a sense of, of where you are now with pearlsonly.com in terms of you know, the markets you serve, the size of your team, a very rough size of, uh, you know, just a rough size of, of a sense of the business size. Uh, give us a snapshot of where you're at and what the business looks like. Right. Yeah. Hi, Andrew. Thanks a lot for, again, inviting me to be on the show. Um, and a quick overview of where we are um, with Pearls Only. We've, we've been around for 11 years, so it's quite a long time, and we've been expanding. We started off with the, with the U.S. market first, and then we gradually expanded into U.K., and then Canada, Australia, and now we're in Germany, uh, France, and we even tried, uh, tried Japan. Um, in terms of um, our size, we're privately held. I'm, I'm the sole owner, so I don't usually disclose the revenue numbers specifically, but just to give your audience an idea where we're at, uh, we're in the low seven figures in terms of uh, yearly revenue. And in terms of the, the size of the team, my core team is, is 10 people, and we expand and, uh, and contract during the year. So we've been up to 60 people during Christmas time. Um, and then also, and then we shrink down to 10. Wow. So, so, you know, seven, more than half a dozen countries. How are you, do you have fulfillment centers in those countries that you're, you're kind of shipping out of? Do you ship everything internationally? How does that work? 
Right. So the, so the fulfillment is actually quite, uh, quite interesting. We've developed a lot of different fulfillment strategies to, to handle all these countries. Um, and it's usually a mixed bag. So, for example, U.S. comprises of uh, us holding some inventory with Amazon warehousing. We use them to, to ship for us some of our items. Some of the sh- items will ship directly from Beijing. Um, so, so it really depends. And we have different methods of shipping. So, for example, if somebody wants something in a rush, uh, we can expedite a customized, customized order from, from China. If they want something a little bit slower, we'll batch it and slow it a little bit sh- slower or ship it a little bit slower, but still fast, fast enough for them to get it within seven to 10 days. And, and do you source all of the products from China? Is that kind of where all the product sourcing originates? Well, when when the business started, that's that's where it was because we were um, selling freshwater pearls, and freshwater pearls are grown in China. But as we started to expand the business, we started to source things from Japan. So we ended up carrying the saltwater Japanese pearls. Uh, Japan is the source for that, and then Tahitian pearls come from Tahiti. Although we don't go to Tahiti to get them, unfortunately, um, <laughs> we, we get those from Hong Kong or we get them from uh, from somewhere in China or even Japan. So. So those those kind of pearls are distributed in this region, but uh, Asia in general is the place for pearls. Man. So how how did you get into the pearl business? It's, it's got to be an interesting story. Uh, well, um, you know, I wish I could tell you that I had uh, some some big uh, moment, eureka moment. Decided to get an airplane, liquidated everything, moved to China, and started a pearl business. But it's not like that at all. Um, I was uh, working in, in Canada and I got headhunted to, to go work in, in Germany. Uh, so I relocated to Germany first and I was running a division from within Germany. And one of the countries I had in my uh, portfolio was, was China. And China was a very big, big market at that time. And it made sense for me to actually move to China to run it from China. So I moved to China. And once in China, one of the, the tourist books had mentioned that pearls are supposed to be a great deal uh, and great prices. So I ended up getting some pearls in the local market and sending it to my mom. And as soon as I sent it to her, I ended up having a, a scolding email from her to say, hey, how come you're spending so much money on me? And I thought, <laughs> this, is, this just does not make a lot of sense. And of course, you didn't uh, correct her, right? You let her think that. No, well, I thought, you know, yeah, okay, what's going on? Because I spent $10 on this strand. And, and my mom actually had a friend that was in a jewelry business. So they told her like, hey, this, this is about $100. So all of a sudden I realized that, you know, this place I'm in, China, has goods that sell for 10 that are worth 100 in, in the West. And that's how the business was born. And, and what year was that, Paul? Uh, that was in 2003. 2003. So, so it's almost 12, 12 years, I guess, now. Yeah, it's crazy. It doesn't seem like it was that long ago. So 2003, obviously, so much China's matured so much in the last 12 years, so many more Western companies are, are sourcing products there. Do you think there's still a lot of opportunity for China? Uh, and obviously, it's not maybe as, as lucrative as it was 12 years ago, but uh, from a sourcing perspective, do you think there's still a lot of opportunity there? Or do you think the days of, of really, you know, that, that rich opportunity are, are quickly dwindling or even already gone? 
Um, you know, that's still there. I think this kind of products where there's a 10x multiplier, there is still all over here. This is still a manufacturing center. Um, the, the challenge now is that I think a lot of the big players are getting into the game. So like, for example, Alibaba is trying to, uh, to get in and they're trying to enable all these Chinese suppliers to sell to the West. So I think it's these opportunities of an arbitrage of buying in China uh, cheap and selling in the West for, for, for more are, are slowly dwindling away. So I wouldn't say that the opportunities are gone, but they're definitely tapering off. So, and I'm going to ask you to kind of look into your crystal ball and make a projection sure. here, <laughs> prediction rather. So how much more, if somebody is, if you were starting from scratch right now in the U.S., let's say, or in Canada, and one of the big things now is it seems like people sourcing from China, it's, again, it is getting more competitive and there's almost like a resurgence of people trying to, you know, create more, more goods that uh, either are made back home or are more customized. If you were starting from scratch, knowing what you know now, would you, would you start and try to head over to China and, and build those supplier relationships knowing that you know, it might um, take a couple of years to do? Or do you think you'd take a different approach given that you, you see China getting a little more competitive? Um, you know, I think, I think I would still head out to China. And just because you know, I've seen what happens with, uh, with the wholesale market in the U.S. and how, how much markup that's already, is already there by the time the product reaches into that stream. A few years ago, I had a startup I was working on that I was quite invested in. We were trying to do wholesale from China into the U.S. And, and I just bring that up because as part of my research there, I saw what the wholesale prices were in the U.S. And basically, by the time you're buying something uh, wholesale in the U.S. or Europe for that matter, all the margins are already gone. You're probably left with 10, 15 percent margin, which doesn't leave you a lot to, to play with. So really, if you wanted to, to kind of go at it a little bit bigger, you want to go down to a place where you have, you know, 50, 60 times or 10 times a thousand percent margin potential on, on the item. And you still see that a lot. So is that, is that something where you need to be pretty discriminating in terms of what market you get into? Or are there quite a few options with those kind of markups from China? Yeah, I think it's it's still everywhere. It's just a matter of finding the right product, finding the supplier, and putting together the product line. I mean, there's markets here where you can go and you can walk in around them for days where there's so many goods that your mind is just spinning. And if you're kind of one of these idea people that are thinking, what can I do with it? You become almost overwhelmed because there's just so much potential of what you could do. And some of these items are so cheap relative to the U.S., that you're, you could be almost building, uh, you know, a hundred or two thousand stores, e-commerce stores, based on the products that are here, all with good margin. So, in some ways, if somebody came to China with with wanting that wanted to get some ideas of what kind of e-commerce store they wanted to get into, they would have lots of um, opportunity to see what's available. And you've got me drooling over here, Paul, on my desk. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds fantastic. I want to yeah. I want to get into a few more things about about China, but before we we dive completely down that rabbit hole, a couple more quick mm-hmm. questions on, on pearls only. You're in more than half a dozen countries. You're your your seven plus figure business. You know you you own it successfully. You know, or rather, you own it completely yourself. So you haven't brought in a bunch of investors. What has made the business a success? And that's kind of a broad question. I know it gets asked to a lot of entrepreneurs, and it's difficult to point to one thing. But looking back, what are some of the things that, that you think really attributed to to where the business is today? 
right? So, you know, I think one of the main things, almost like kind of my, my philosophy, is something I picked up in one of my early sales training days when I was working in Canada and in sales. We, we were doing pretty big sales, big ticket sales items. So we were always trying to see how to best look after the customer. And I remember this training session when somebody said, you, you want to treat each customer as a million dollar customer, or in my cases back then it was $10 million customers. But even if they're a small guy, somebody that's only doing you know, a half a million dollar project, you still want to treat them as, as a million dollar customer. So treating somebody as a million dollar customer stuck in my mind. I carried this for the pearls only business. And I thought, how can I offer somebody that's buying, let's say a $50 item, a million dollar experience. And so, so I kind of applied that right across the whole line. And I think this has kind of been the key that people get a product from us and they open it and they're saying, wow, this is so amazing. It's well packed. It's well wrapped. Um, it's not just thrown in the bag and, and delivered. It's just that there's some care around it. So there's a bit of an experience about what we deliver. And I think we get a lot of uh, word of mouth beyond that. Very cool. So it's really about the brand experience. Do you, what percentage of of customers do you think that you have are repeat customers versus new ones that come in? Right. So basically we're, we're looking at about 10% a year of repeat business, which um, considering that pearls are very, um, it's, a, it's probably a, an item you buy and you don't buy again and again for many years. Um, I think that's actually hitting pretty good for what we can get from that kind of market space. So I, I want to dive into China, and I got a lot of questions here. It's, okay, you know, your, sure. your perspective on it is just really interesting. I can't resist. So, Paul, you're in Beijing. Why? Uh, why Beijing? I mean, you moved there for work a number of years ago, but of course, you know, I'm, I'm guessing with your business and with your team, you could probably live anywhere in China or, or anywhere in the world for that matter. So, what's kept you in Beijing? Um, well, you know, actually, I, I've looked at uh, potentially relocating other places, but one of the things that has kept me here is that it's actually a pretty good place to run a business from, and, and it would maybe sound a little bit counter to what most people think, but it does offer quite a few benefits. Uh, one of them is that we're very close to the source of the product. Um, so in most cases, we're just within a couple hours or two or three hours flight of, of any kind of supplier that we want to, to visit. Um, and then second, and I think this is a very big advantage uh, for pearls only, is that the shipping costs out of China are very, very cheap compared to the rest of the world. So I'm able to cost-effectively ship things out of China, out of Beijing, um, to uh, to UK, to Australia, to US, um, and it's uh, it's much much cheaper compared to what I would be able to do in any other places. And I and I've looked at places like Thailand, I looked at Singapore, I've looked at US, I've even looked at Canada um, to see if perhaps the business environment somewhere else would be better. And after all that research, I still land back on Beijing as being one of the, the better places. Now, having said that, it doesn't have to be Beijing. I think China in general just has this, these advantages. So, so the shipping's cheap and the, uh, you know, you're close to the, the products. But what's, what's it like running a business in China? Because China's kind of got this, it's this paradoxical mix of you know, a communist state, but yet it's so capitalistic. And um, you, know, you, kinda, you could think from maybe a really loose regulatory standpoint would make things easy. But then again, you've got some political issues. So what's it like running a business there? Um, yeah, you know, it's definitely got its challenges. When I think about the biggest challenges is um, it's not what people would typically think. 
Um, so let me kind of cover that a little bit. One of the maybe the kind of common things people think is that there's a lot of corruption, that we have to pay people off to have a business here uh, to function. That That's one of the things my, my friends ask me. It's like, hey, who did you bribe today? And <laughs> the fact is I haven't bribed anybody in 11 years. So from that perspective, it's been actually very, very easy because we just don't have that. What makes there's some there's one difficulty here, and it's really it's currency control. And most people don't realize that that's what the businesses here face. So let me cover currency control a little bit for those that don't know what that means. So currency control means that you can't bring money into China um, whenever you want to, and consequently you can't take money out of China whenever you want to. So for me to to be able to pay a vendor in China, I have to go through a number of hoops to bring currency into China to pay the bill here. Uh, Consequently, if I make money in China, I can't send this money outside of Chinese banking system to pay a bill in the U.S., for example. Or to be more precise, if I do want to do that, it'll take me six or eight months. So as a result, you end up setting up these pretty complicated uh, corporate structures that allow you to basically move money efficiently and get around or actually work with the currency controls that China has put in place. Paul, it, I knew about the currency controls that, that restricted the outflows of money from China, but I had no idea that, that China was so restrictive on money you could bring into the country. That seems really weird. Do you know the rationale behind that? What's, what's the story? Right. So the the main reason, it, it kind of goes back to one of the fundamentals, and it's taxation in China. And a lot of the places in China, the taxation here is really, it's very fuzzy, and a lot of businesses don't pay taxes. So the government it was very clever, and the way they managed to collect taxes is on exports. So whenever you export an item, you have to declare it. And as the goods leave China, you end up paying a VAT on it. And that's the primary revenue for the government. And it's kind of the foolproof way for them to collect taxes. So when you think about that, as the company's exporting items out of China, all of a sudden they need to be somehow receive the money for those goods. And for them to receive the money, they need to prove that they've exported something out. And what that allows them to do is the government is then able to match exports versus the money coming in to say, okay, these guys exported the goods and they actually brought the money to China, so the money stays in China. Ah, that makes sense. Okay, that's crazy. What about the the filtering on the internet? I mean, our the connection uh, that that we have right now, we may be able to rec- bring in a recording you're doing, but the connection we're talking on is a little rough because uh, some of the the internet issues in China and and the way partially some of the censorship that they do in the filtering. So, is that something that causes uh, a problem for you in Beijing? I can't imagine trying to to do some of the stuff that I do for business with a censored <laughs> internet. I mean, what kind of problems do you have with that? Yeah, I mean, it's a constant, it's a constant challenge. Um, so we have to always work around the the firewall. For example, now, uh, almost everything in the West is filtered. So Google, anything Google related is filtered. Even things, any sites that are using Google tracking start to get filtered out, or at least they start to slow down. So we end up having to use uh, private VPNs uh, to get through the firewall. But even just recently now, the Chinese government is trying to block the the VPN services. 
So the way you get around this is you end up having five or six of them. And as one of them starts to get blocked, you switch to another one and then another one. And hopefully by the time one of them gets blocked, the other, some, some VPN company figured a workaround or found a new server and you're, you're just kind of always switching back and forth. So it definitely makes it a lot more challenging in, in how you run a business, especially an e-commerce business. Oh, so it's this cat, this game of cat and mouse that the internet users are always playing with the government, whack-a-mole almost. That's right. But I mean, most Chinese don't really care. You know, most of the Chinese population doesn't need, doesn't know, doesn't get outside of the, the Chinese ecosystem. So it's really a lot of the expats or businesses that suffer as part of this. Hmm. What are your thoughts on Alibaba? I mean, you've got, uh, uh, you know, Alibaba, of course, is well known in the U.S. for their their portal for U.S. businesses to be able to connect with manufacturers in China. But but in China, of course, uh, it's Taibo. Is that the name of the the, the B two C site? Right, Tao, Taobao, Taobao, but yeah, very close. Taobao, Your thank you. Coming along. Right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I can say about Ni Hao, and that's it. Um, there you go. But uh, you know, so it's it, Alibaba.com is as Westerners, Americans, and Canadians know it. It's, it's mm-hmm. such a tiny, tiny fraction of Alibaba's business. So, I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on just your perspective. You have a perspective on the ground in China where Alibaba is really, you know, growing the lion's share of their business. What right. what's it look like from over there? What's what's what are your thoughts on that company? Yeah, it's absolutely insane um, what's happening here. I mean, uh, this is uh, when you look at uh, Taobao. This is like the discount place to buy everything, and most Chinese are buying things on Taobao these days. And it's fueled by a number of things. First of all, the delivery charges in China in general are very cheap, and that's because of the abundance of low cost labor. So all these goods can be delivered to anybody that you buy from this system for free or something like a dollar or something like this. And it, it gets delivered fast. Within one or two days, anything you order, you have access to. And there's um, basically anything and everything you want is on, on Taobao. And uh, the prices are extremely competitive. And, and it's, again, it's a little bit like Amazon that this competition is fueled by, by, by Alibaba infrastructure. But in a way, they, they set up this ecosystem where people are just competing with themselves. So it, it just works. It works for this, this environment where everybody wants something very cheap. They get it very fast. So it seems like everything came together for, for Alibaba here, for Taobao. Do you see them, and this is maybe a little bit harder to answer, but do you see them actually being a threat to Amazon in the U.S. at all? Uh, you know, they, from the price point of view, I think it'd be amazing what they would do to the U.S., uh, I guess, well, Amazon and U.S. economy, if they could bring this, bridge this gap. Uh, the thing that's going to hold them back is that Chinese vendors don't really know how to sell to the U.S. consumer. So I think that's going to be always an obstacle that's going to stay, stay in the way. So even if Taobao, there's a taobao.com.us, let's say, or a U.S. version of it, and some kind of automated translation software that could translate the, the, the descriptions and so on, it would still be very hard, I think, to, to bridge this gap. And I, I know Alibaba is trying this. They're trying to open up this market, this Chinese market to the U.S. consumers. Um, but it, it's going to be a challenge, I think. There's a lot of people projecting that, it, uh, well, I, it's pretty reputable. Most major economists look at China and they say they're going to be the number one economy in the not-too-distant future. 
Do you think China is going to eclipse the West in terms of influence and relevance as well? There's a lot of people uh, that kind of seem to think that the 21st century is going to be belonging to Asia and China in particular. Do you, do you see that? Do you, do you think that's going to be the case with your perspective there? You know, I'm um, I'm a little bit torn. Um, I, I've been asked this question before, and um, it goes back to a little bit of philosophical outlook. And maybe I'll give you a little bit of background where I'm coming from, because I see two factors here. One is a factor that would say, yes, it's going to happen. And there's another dampening factor that says, no, it won't. Uh, so the factor that I see that could make this happen is that, that people in, in China in particular are actually very hardworking people, and they're very motivated uh, to get ahead. And surprisingly, the communist government has been encouraging this. So they, they want people to be more self-sufficient. They don't want people to rely on the government to, to give them everything. And people have the first, the first time in a long time, they have this opportunity to get ahead. And they've really jumped on it. And they're really hard workers. And so this hard work ethic is, is very, uh, I kind of look at it and I'm thinking, wow, it's just, just really impressive how hard people can, can work here. So this is the factor that will tell me that this, this hard work ethic will propel China forward and this de desire to get ahead. Uh, the, the dampening factor of what could slow this down is the Chinese education system. And, and the key there is that the people coming out of universities are not trained to think. Um, they're not trained to innovate. Um, they really are trained to kind of copy and, and clone. And, I, and I'm being very general here, but this is kind of from my experience of people I've, I've hired from some of the best universities here in China. And there's obviously exceptions, but in general, they're not trained to think. Now, this is obviously intentional because I think uh, this is a government policy. They, they don't want the workforce, the educated populace to be too, to have too many of their own ideas, if I could say that. So I think this part could hold people back. So the innovation, I guess, the, the, the innovation in China is probably not going to push them forward. The desire of people to get ahead is the factor that could. And I think if you balance it out, I say, yes, they'll probably get ahead. But honestly, I, I just can't see them overtaking the U.S. in, in terms of what U.S. can, can do. So, Paul, this is kind yeah. of a maybe a... a Blunt question, but do you see there being some kind of political revolution in China in the next, you know, a decade, couple of decades? It's, if you look historically, most countries that open up economically end up becoming, you know, fairly open politically as well. So is that something you think is inevitable with China in the, in the short term? You know, that's kind of one of the common questions people ask is, is there going to be a revolution? Is, is this going to all tumble down somehow? Uh, are people going to rise up because they're unhappy? So again, I'm, I'm not a, a you know, political scientist. I'm just kind of observer of people in some ways. And, and the thing I see here is people are getting richer. They're, they're doing better than they have a few years ago. And as long as that continues, I think they're going to be content. Now, on top of this, from from my my view, I think the Chinese government is actually a very clever government, and I know a lot of people don't agree with me on on you know the human rights issues and so on. But I think from where China was and where China needs to go, this style of government has been actually very very helpful for China to grow. And I think as this country develops, the government will kind of mold and change uh, to accommodate the growth. But from everything I've seen with how the Chinese um, have handled it, the Chinese government, it's, it's been very, very smart, very clever. 
And, you know, obviously there's issues, you know, and I think when you look at any government anywhere, there's always issues and, and there's issues here as well. But in general, it's quite impressive. And I'll just give you a small example of how clever the, the Chinese government is. The other day, there was a, or maybe it's actually a few years ago, there was a concert and they hosted a, a French singer inside their Politburo building. So they opened up, it's kind of like opening the Congress Hall, I guess, in the U.S. and having a, a Western, uh, let's say, a Chinese singer there perform. Um, so it's kind of this kind of opening of, of being there, showing that they're very flexible, that they're accommodating, that they're working with other cultures and that they're moving forward and they're becoming more transparent as a government. So, yes, you know, from the outside, there is this stigma that they're communists, that they're suppressing people. There's this censorship and so on. But in so many ways, I think it's it's one of those things that, that what's making this work here. And if this disappeared, I think there'd be a lot of um, a lot of poor people. And I think everybody else would be a lot worse off. Paul, one parting question for you. It's kind of a two part question, but. What do you see as the biggest opportunity in e-commerce right now? And what do you see as the biggest threat or disruptive force in e-commerce right now? So the biggest threat, I guess, so this brings us back to U.S. And I think uh, Amazon comes as the as number one. And I think uh, from my point of view, Amazon is one of those things that's both disruptive, actually, and also a threat. If I can compare Amazon to Walmart, I think Amazon is going to do to e-commerce sites what Walmart did to small towns America, where you know a Walmart would come into a town and all these little shops would close. And I think this is what Amazon, in some ways, is going to do to e-commerce. It's going to they're going to change the landscape. But at the same time, and they're also going to disrupt a bunch of bunch of things of how people have done um, e-commerce, and they're going to push some new things forward. And I think that's going to come in some of the defensive maneuvers that some of the e-commerce stores were going to have to go on uh, to survive. And I mean, who knows how that's going to turn out. But I think what we're going to probably see is much more, uh, many more niche sites with much better information, much better customer care as a way to to survive in the world of Amazon. Paul, it's, it's been so cool getting your perspective, your on-the-ground perspective and very candid responses uh, from China. And in terms of having you in the forum the last two, three months, it's been just absolute pleasure. You've you contributed so much to uh, to the community in terms of your replies. I think you first five-star member in like in like less than two months. It was amazing. <laughs> so so thank you for everything you've poured into that community. And and thanks for taking the time to talk. It's been really, really interesting getting to getting kind of peek inside your world. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, Andrew. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on the show. That's going to do it for this week. But if you're interested in launching your own e-commerce store, download my free 55-page ebook on niche selection and getting started. And if you're a bit more experienced, look into the e-commerce fuel private forum. It's a vetted community for store owners with at least 4,000 in monthly sales or industry professionals with at least a year or more experience in the e-commerce space. You can learn more about both the ebook and the form at ecommercefuel.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again next Friday.